0: Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Doing all right? We got some youth in the house? I heard you had an incredible weekend, yeah? Come on. So glad you're with us. If you didn't know, the youth had a youth camp, and I heard they met with Jesus. Is that true? Yeah, I think you did, right? Come on. That's why we're here. We're jealous. We want some of that today for us. We'll take it. Well, my name's Adam. I'm the associate pastor here Welcome to Antioch. If this is if you're a guest with us, we're so glad you're here. Um, We're going to be jumping in uh, to a series, and today we're going to be wrapping up a series we've been going over for the last 14 weeks—a study on the Book of John. And so, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John 21. Um, uh, But as you do that, I just want to give a couple announcements. One is, uh, if you've been with us only for the last 14 weeks, you have not had the privilege and the opportunity to meet or hear from Travis Phillips, our lead pastor but he will be back with us next Sunday. So yes, so so I'm so excited. And um, he's a wonderful, godly man. He has an incredible family. Uh, and they have been gone and on a sabbatical, which has been a gift that we could give to him as a church, which is awesome to let them just be refreshed and rejuvenated in the Lord and as a family. Uh, but he will be back starting next Sunday. So super excited about that. But uh, today I have the privilege and responsibility of trying to close the loop as we've been studying the book of John and so we're gonna be in John chapter 21 but real quick just to give a little bit of a, of a, a backtracking of how we got here so John is this incredible writer and a, and a disciple of Jesus and an early apostle who wrote one of the four Gospels you have Matthew Mark Luke and John uh, Matthew Mark and Luke are the synoptic Gospels John his his Gospels just different His approach to it is different. Uh, He's more emotive. 90% of the material in his gospel is not found in the other three. So he's telling just different stories of Jesus. And he's really trying to communicate not just the things that Jesus did, but why or the character or the motivations of why Jesus did what he did. So he's trying to provoke the listener. He's trying to get us to be wooed by the person of Jesus that we might be responders to it. And we know this because it concludes in John 20, which we talked about last week, and it's been the theme verse of the whole series, which is John 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, in his own gospel that he's talking about. He says, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's telling us, and he's concluding, saying, hey, I'm writing all this down For two major reasons: one is that you know who Jesus is. The word Jesus or Christ shows up over 170 times in John's gospel, so it's all about Jesus. And then the word belief or believe show up over a hundred times. So his his main theme is just pounding through this gospel: know who Jesus is, and by believing in Him, you might have life in His name. This is what He tells us time and time again. Every time I read John. I find myself naturally feeling like I should conclude here in chapter 20. I don't know if you've ever read it and felt that way, but even with this verse, it feels like it's like a little period at the end and it's like, oh, that's done. That feels really nice. But for whatever reason, we see that John actually jumps back into story and has chapter 21. It feels almost like an anomaly, like why is, why is 21 even there? And what I want to propose to you is that John felt like his testimony of the life of Jesus was incomplete if he didn't tell you the therefore. Like, yes, this is who Jesus was, this is what Jesus has done, and the 21 is the therefore. It's like the, these things you need to know that are really important that apply to you, the listener, the disciple, the follower of Jesus, the responder to this message. And there's, I'm gonna go ahead and like cheat a little bit, and I'm gonna tell you my two major points of the therefore. The first one is that John is wanting us to know that Jesus' resurrection provides us the opportunity for new beginnings. So Jesus didn't just die and save us at one point and hope that the salvation sticks and you just live perfect from that moment you accept Jesus on. But his message, as he specifically talks about Peter, as we are about to read, you see that he's giving you a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a 200th chance and a thousandth chance. He is constantly offering new opportunities and new beginnings. That's good news. That it's good news for us that our God is merciful And that there is new mercies every morning. And that where sin abounds, his grace abounds. And that he is extending these new opportunities to us. The second message that he wants to tell us in this chapter is that Jesus' message is not just for us to have, but it's for us to give away. So as he concludes his book and he writes all this beautiful thing about the life and the ministry of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and his appearing, he shows up multiple times in Uh, to many people. In chapter 20, he shows up to some of the disciples. He shows up to Thomas. He shows up to Mary Magdalene. He even shows up at one point to over 500 people at one time. So I just want to say that just because it's a cool fact. It's not like a bunch of people who just kind of chime in and group think, yeah, I saw Jesus too. And you're like, is it viable? Can you trust that Jesus really resurrected? There was one point in one time where 500 people all together saw him at one moment. After he died and resurrected. So his appearing was validated. So all this happened, and now John's saying, hey, that's all awesome, it's all necessary, it's all good, it's the gospel, but what do we do about it? And that's where we pick up in John chapter 21, starting in verse one. Sound good? All right, let's read together. After Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard them say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, and he had taken off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals where the fish was on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 But even with so many, the net was not torn. So Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. All right, so let's pray real quick and we're going to jump right into this. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you spoke through John as he gives us this gospel And I pray, Father, that there would be a true responding and equipping of the saints, of the people in this room, of the church, to know what to do with this message, that we wouldn't be just hearers or even agreeers of it, but that we'd be doers of it. So come and change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to jump right back into verse one, and we're going to walk through this real quick. So it says, after Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathan, Nathaniel, and the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. So what we have is we have the disciples in this weird kind of state of limbo. So seven of the original 12 disciples are all together. We know one's not there, Judas, because he betrayed Jesus. He's kind of out of the picture. And then we don't really know currently where the other four are. But we know that seven of them are all together. And we know that Jesus has already died. He's already resurrected. And we also know that he had appeared to some of the disciples and other people. We know this from Luke 24 and from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 it tells us that he appeared to some of the disciples and other people prior to this this experience. So now they're in this weird state where they're on this side of the the Sea of Galilee, which is also interesting because the last thing that Jesus had told them, he says, go to a mountain. And they knew what mountain, but we don't know what mountain, but some mountain they were supposed to go. And Jesus says, I'm gonna appear to you there. But at this point, they're not at a mountain and they're hanging out and they're feeling kind of stuck. And I don't know if you've ever felt this way in your journey with God, but like, they've been going through what I would describe as a pretty big emotional roller coaster the last few days because the man that they had followed for the last three years and devoted their full lives to had died. So that's kind of a bummer because you're like putting all your eggs in that basket and all of a sudden he's gone. But then they also heard rumors that he resurrected and then they actually have, some of them have firsthand testimony of his appearing before them as a resurrected Lord. So then it's like, awesome, yay. And then he disappears again. So they're going up and down, up, and they're like, okay, what's next? I don't know if you've had some awesome experiences with Jesus. I pray that you have. I pray that God is overwhelming you with his loving kindness and with revelation and truth and hope in your life. But I don't know about you, but there's times in my life where I'm like, what do I do next? Like, this is awesome, God, but like, what's the next step in my life, in my journey? I feel like it's kind of like, what in the world? A little bit of a roller coaster. Well, all these disciples, that's what's going on inside. And they're just sitting there along the side of the Sea of Galilee and they're like, uh. And then Peter, being Peter, who is kind of the natural-born leader of the group, but he's also the impulsive one, is like, I'm going fishing. And they're like, oh, we'll go with you. And they just kind of join in with him and they just start going fishing. But unfortunately, they catch nothing. Peter gets a bad rap for this because they sometimes are like, Why isn't he going to the mountain that God told him to go to? Or, you know, why you know, he just kind of filling time, but I just want to give a little bit of grace to Peter as we ought to, because I think maybe he was just being responsible. I mean, he was a professional fisherman. It's, what he, it's his trade. It's what he knew. And just so you know, in your journey of walking with Jesus, there's gonna be many seasons and times where you're gonna have to wait on God, where God will give you a promise, and there'll be a period of time before the promise fulfilled. There's gonna be a waiting. And I also wanna challenge you that in the waiting, you can passively wait, or you can actively wait. So I actually wanna give some prompts to Peter because he didn't just sit on his hand and say, well, you know, I'm just waiting on Jesus to do whatever next. He's like, well, what can I do to steward my life? I'm a fisherman. I'm going to go fish. And there's times where you're like, I don't know what to do next. I'd say, well, what, what's, how do you steward your life in the way that honors God and takes care of the responsibilities God's given you? That is holy. That is not like junior Jesus lifestyle. Okay. So as you're waiting on the Lord and you're honoring God with the promises and believing for the breakthrough, you can also be stewarding your life in the everyday with what you know. So that's what Peter does as they go fishing. As they're fishing and they're out there, it says that they caught nothing. And then in verse 4, it says, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? So they didn't realize who Jesus was. They just know that this dude was out on the shore, but he says, friends, haven't you any fish? The word friends there is actually more accurately translated as children. So it's this very specific word that Jesus uses and it does two things. One is it's it's not like belittling them. It's it's like endearment. It's this like kind, soft phrase of like children, like people I care about, young ones. So he does two things. He says something that communicates his love for them and care for them but it also communicates his authority over them. So they now recognize, okay, this guy's like a teacher, a leader, a rabbi, an authority. There's something of of his stature that's higher than our stature, just in that one phrase. And they say, no, they answered. They said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Um, I had the opportunity to go to Israel once, and we were at this museum where they had excavated and refurbished this boat that was a boat they actually believe was from the time of Jesus. That was a typical fishing vessel that a disciple would be, like Peter, would be using as a fisherman. It's about 27 feet long. It's made of wood. It's really cool. It's not very big, and it's only seven and a half feet wide. So this guy on the shore yells out to them, says, "Yeah, I know your net's on the left side. Do me a favor and th- throw it on the on the right side." And they're like, uh... Okay, and I don't know about you, but I don't know if fish really are that picky about seven and a half feet within water of where they choose to bite or not or where they choose to be. But what happens is when they did, as it says, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. So what I want to propose just real quick is there's a huge difference in doing something on your own versus doing something led by the Spirit of God. Because, I mean, I look at a boat and it's seven and a half feet and I can't tell you a whole lot of difference of why one side would work the other other than the fact that just Jesus told them to. And there's things in your life and you're going, I have two options. I, what really doesn't make any difference except for you know God's prompting you to obey one specific direction? I encourage you to do it. The difference between success and failure was seven and a half feet for them. Success... Catching a load that could barely pull in. Failure that didn't catch a thing all night. Seven and a half feet. But what I want to tell you is the difference is obedience. Your success in God is not measured in how audacious things you do, how much you know, how radical you can be. It's simply your next yes to Jesus. Your obedience is your success in God. And I'll tell you, like, there's... There's a huge difference, like I said, about like, what is man's best thought, like, oh, I'll do it this, versus God's compelling or God's leadership. And the biggest difference is results, right? You wanna have the fruit, you wanna have the testimony, you wanna have the results of, of blessing and of, of, of breakthrough and of healing and restoration in your life, obey the next yes to Jesus. Because for whatever reason, seven and a half feet ain't very far, but when you obey Jesus, it seems to change everything. I also wanna just make a moment here to challenge people that though it is godly to be actively waiting, I wanna put the emphasis on the fact that you're still waiting on the Lord. You're not just actively doing. Does that make sense? So I know many people who will passively wait, meaning they will do nothing. And they're just saying, I'm just waiting for God to tell me the next thing. And I'm like, maybe God's telling you to get off the couch and start moving a little bit and participate in what's happening in your world, you know? And then there's the other extreme where people are doers, 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 but they left Jesus back a long time ago, right? They're just like, I'm just going and God's way back there. And they're like, oh man, we need to, we need to be waiting with the Lord, not in spite of the Lord. And I find that to be very true as far as my role, even with our staff, like one of the great privileges I have is we have an incredible staff for the record. And hopefully even through this series, you got to hear from many, many of them preach the Bible and get to know who they are. They are godly people. They They really love Jesus and it's very real. It's a very sincere personal devotion to Jesus. But a big part of my job is I'll sit with them and say, do you know there's a difference between a personal devotional life and a ministry life in God? And you cannot make them supplemental. You can't say, oh, but I do all this Bible study for my sermon and I meet with that person in discipleship and I lead that activity or that Bible study or that whatever. Who cares if you're not personally meeting with Jesus? Like we don't need a bunch of people that are just informed. We need people transformed because they know how to get their needs met in God. And so don't dupe yourself in thinking just because you stay actively busy that you're actually waiting on the Lord. You're just doing and you're just trying to pass time and you just get stuck in that motion. It's the disease of ministry I can't tell you how many pastors burn out because they stop meeting with God personally while they're just doing ministry all day long and that's just the, it's the same way for, for anybody anybody in the church of God, anybody in the family of God as we can do so much Christian stuff but we miss Christ right in the middle of it. in the book of Revelation uh, in chapter two there's even a, a warning that Jesus gives to the Church of Ephesus and he, he writes something to the effect of this. He says, I commend you, Church of Ephesus, because you work hard and you labor and you're diligent and you don't grow weary and you're faithful and you're enduring of the hardships of life as you do ministry. I'm so proud of you. And he says, but I have this one thing against you. You have forgotten your first love. Way to go, church. You've been really churchy. But you stopped abiding in the presence of Jesus. I'll tell you, I love this community I wanna be here, but you know why I wanna be here? Because God's here. God's here. That's what changes everything. The presence of God changes everything. And if Jesus wasn't here, I'm gonna go wherever he is. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like, I wanna be wherever Jesus is. And I wanna be about him and my life surrounding about him, not about doing stuff for him, but just being fully in love and devoted to him. And the overflow of our lives are the things that we do. That, and that, that's how you can tell, you can have two people stand in front of you and tell the exact same truth about who God is, right? But one knows how to get their needs met in God and walk intimately in obedience with him, and one just knows a whole lot of Bible stuff and can say a whole lot smarter things than I can, right? And you can feel the weight of one versus the other. You can tell when someone actually loves Jesus and walks deeply with Jesus versus someone who just can spout out a bunch of stuff, right? We wanna be the real deal here. We wanna be authentic people who learn to fall in love with Jesus who, yes, do stuff, put our hand to the plow, work hard, you know, wait actively, not passively, but we also don't want to miss Jesus in the process. Picking up in verse 7. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, "'It is the Lord!' As soon as Simon Peter heard this, him say, "'It is the Lord,' he wrapped out his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards." So this is Peter being crazy reckless, Peter, again. So this is there's a theme here. The poor guy for all eternity is gonna be known as like the nutty guy, who's just really impulsive and does big outlandish things and has a loud mouth. But here he is again. But so what we have is he's in the boat, he recognizes the Lord, and then he puts his clothes back on to, to then jump into the water to swim to the shore, which is a little bit backwards. But we can assume that he is either naked or he's wearing his undies. And he's in the boat because it's probably a hot day and he's out fishing and he's trying to stay cool. But then he thinks, ooh, I'm gonna go see the Lord. I probably look, should look more little appropriate. So I'm gonna clean myself a little bit and then jump in, right? So it's a little bit of this crazy moment. But what I wanna propose is why Peter is so impulsive and excited and reactive to the fact that he hears it's the Lord, is because this whole experience is unusually reminiscent of an experience he had earlier in his life, about three years earlier. And it's a radical experience, the most transformative experience actually in Peter's entire life. And he's like, it's happening again. God, Whoa, this, this is too like deja vu. Something is happening. And I wanna read that experience. It's found in Luke chapter five, starting in verse one. It says, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake, uh, and it's by the Sea of Galilee. It's the same place. even it has three different names. Uh, it says, the people were crowded around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats, left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little fort from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When they had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon Peter answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. I just want to pause real quick. So what's happening is Jesus is like the traveling evangelist. He's walking around telling stories, and people are like, who is this guy? There's something different about him, and he has a crowd following him, right? And then there's Peter, a fisherman, who just finished a long day of fishing, all long night because it's at nighttime that they catch fish, now morning, and they caught nothing, and he's cleaning the boat, cleaning the nets, and he's discouraged. And then Jesus comes up and says, hey, can I hop on your boat and be like kind of like a, a floating podium thing here where I can preach from the water. People are crowding around too much and it helps me to get a little way from the shore so I can preach to the masses. It's so like, all right. So he lets him out and he's sitting on the boat and he has to hear Jesus preach his message. He's waiting. And He says, when he's done, he says, hey, Simon Peter, let's, let's go further out and let's go fishing. And his response to him says, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. I want to challenge you if you wanna have a radical transformative experience in your life, start living a because you say so lifestyle. This, I just wanna warn you, it'll change everything. I'm not being all pipe dream and just being emotional here. I'm, it'll change everything. If you start to change your posture to God, whatever you say, I'll do because you say so. It might not make sense. God, I've been doing this all the time. I know what you're talking about, Jesus. You don't get it and Jesus is like, no. We're talking seven half foot width of a yes and all of a sudden the results are really different, right? And here it is, three years earlier in Peter's ministry, and he's going, okay, because you say so, I will. And then what happens, it says in verse six, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners to the other boats to come and to help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John and the son of Zebedee and Simon and partner. Listen, moments earlier, Peter was a fisherman and Jesus was a traveling evangelist. And all of a sudden, in a moment, Jesus, uh, Peter now becomes a sinful man and Jesus is seen as the Lord. He had a radical encounter of sobriety with Jesus. Have you ever had those kind of encounters with Jesus? You think you have an idea of who Jesus is, or you think you have a grid on what's going on in your world around you, and all of a sudden God shows up. And all of a sudden, your depravity and sinfulness and neediness is evident to you, and his bigness and glory and goodness is overwhelming. This is exactly what happens to Peter. This is the moment Peter gives his life to Jesus and says, I'll follow you anywhere. We know this because then it says, then Simon, Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid for now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up to shore, left everything and follow them. They left the largest catch of their career. They left it and said, I'm going after Jesus. So now you fast forward three years later and we are now in John 21 and he is in a boat and this guy says, try the other side and they do it and they catch this huge heap and then also the one whom Jesus loves, John says, It's the Lord. And Peter's like, oh my, it's happening again. What? And he just puts on his clothes and goes swimming. He dives in saying, I know what this is like. I know how good this is. How could I have forgotten? And he goes in to see Jesus. What's so beautiful is how in the midst of our mistakes, in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our inconsistencies and lack of faithfulness, Jesus seems to be abundantly faithful to Peter, right? In that one act, he not only is reminding Peter who Peter is, a sinful man who needs Jesus, but he's reminding Peter who he is, a good leader who loves him and is pursuing him, is calling him to follow him. In one act, all these dots are connected for Peter and he's going, what am I doing? This is everything. And realize moments, or moments, days before this, Peter had denied Jesus three times. So there's this level of shame and unworthiness of being compromised going on in his heart and mind going, I just, I totally screwed it up. You know, I just totally screwed it up. And Jesus is saying, no, I want to remind you who you are. I want to remind you who I am. Now come again, Peter, come follow me. Nothing's changed. Let's go. Let's keep moving forward. I don't know what you have done. I know what I've done. It's a whole lot of junk. And we have all kinds of sin. The Bible says we've all sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. And it says that all of us are in need of God to move miraculously and powerfully in our lives. And what I want to challenge you is that your sin is not too great for God to still use you. Your sin is not too great for God to still choose to love you unconditionally. God does not long for you to sit on the sidelines. He longs to remind you this morning, hey, I don't know what you did where you denied me three times or you just totally messed up or totally rebelled. Whatever your deal is, you know what? This morning, right now, I'm a God of new beginnings. That's what he's saying to Peter. I'm a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. There's a new start for you, Peter. And you need to hear that this morning because you might be heaped with condemnation and God's saying, I died for that. That You don't have to feel that. You might be heaped with shame. And he's like, no, I died for that. You don't need to feel that any longer. Just come to me. And Jesus wants to take away your condemnation and he wants to take away your shame and he wants to give you grace in exchange this morning. We're going to skip down to verse 15, because after he takes the fish onto the, the shore, he, what he does is he makes breakfast for them. And what's kind of neat, just a little side thought, it's just a little moment, but when they get to the shore, it says that Jesus already had a fire going with coals and he already had a fish on it. And he says, bring your fish. And I just want to make a little side note here. Is like, do you know that God doesn't need us? Like he's not lacking in anything. He's like, man, I have this great plan, but I can't do it because you're not participating. His plans will be accomplished, is what the Bible says. He will be victorious. He will get all the glory and all the honor and all the praise, Rather, we choose to give it to him freely, which we ought to, or reluctantly in a, sub- in a sober moment in the future. We want to be those who say, God, I give you all the praise and all the glory, and I want to co-labor with you, not because you need me, because you're inviting me into something. And that little fish just sitting on the cold—that just makes me think, man, he didn't need Peter's fish. Even though he's the one who made him, helped him catch it in the first place, with this miracle. But even though he didn't need it, he just chose to cooperate and, and co-labor with Peter. And I just, it's a little side point, but I just want you to know, God doesn't need you. He is actually choosing to work with you because he loves you, because he delights in you. You might feel like, man, I think God just frustrated me. I think that he's just a little disappointed in me. And I just want to tell you right now, he's looking at you not that way at all, but going, man, I just want to spend time with you. I just want to be wherever you are and I want to do whatever you want. Just bring what you have. You know, I don't even need it, but I choose to let you bring what you have so we can work together. Just bring what you have. That is God's heart towards you right now. And then after they finished eating, we pick up in verse 15, it says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs, Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. It's a very interesting but yet powerful exchange that's happening right here with Peter and Jesus. One thing that's interesting is, that it's public. Like this feels like a very intimate exchange and there's like onlookers. I don't know if you've ever been around conversations that should probably be private and aren't. But it's kind of one of those moments you're like, am I supposed to, like you can imagine John going, should I be somewhere else, you know? I don't know, it's like this weird moment. But I think it's quite fitting. So we know that, first of all, we know that Peter specifically has already had an appearing a visitation with Jesus post his resurrection. So we already know that he had a special encounter with Jesus. So it's not like he's just calling Peter out in front of everybody, embarrassing him for the first time after he, since he's been resurrected. We already know that he had a, a sweet moment with God already. But secondly, we know that Peter denied Jesus publicly three times. In public, out loud, he denied Jesus three times. And now we have this exchange where, Jesus, where Peter's given the opportunity to publicly declare who Jesus is publicly in front of others. This is like a a reinstating. This is a, a mercy opportunity for Jesus to say, let's try this again. And I'll tell you, God is really kind about the let try this again. I feel like he tells me that more than anything else. Well, and he loves me, which I'm very thankful for, right? But I feel like he says more like, it's like, I love you, Adam. Now let's try that again, because <laughs> I usually screw it up, right? And that's, just, that's what he's doing with Peter. He's like, hey, let's try this again. And this exchange is so powerful because he's giving Peter the opportunity to repent and restore a wrongdoing. Isn't that beautiful? This is a beautiful exchange. This isn't a bad exchange. And there's this quote that I love by Charles Spurgeon. It says this, a man's repentance should be as notorious as his sin. I'm gonna say it again. I want you to take it in. A man's repentance should be as notorious as his sin. So Peter notoriously, for all eternity, for for all of history, will know that he denied Jesus publicly three times. But we also know for all eternity that he has given the opportunity to three times publicly declare who Jesus is as he's getting reinstated by Jesus. What this tells me is that we should not be pulled away or ashamed or bashful or reluctant to repent, but we should boast in repentance. Do you know that repentance is a gift from God? It is the mercy of God that says, if you just say, I'm sorry, and say that you need me, I'll rush in, and I'll take away your shame and your condemnation. I'll begin to heal you and restore you, and those that your sin affected, let me into the equation. That's what repentance does. It's beautiful, but yet we sometimes feel like we'll even have huge sin, huge mistakes, huge consequences to our choices, and they'll be like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, just kind of skirt around the road. No, boast in it. Thank you, Jesus, That when I was dead in my sin, you you lifted me up. Thank you, Jesus, that when my sin abounded, your grace even abounded even more and you gave me a new opportunity. Like, do not be afraid to repent, but embrace it, run to it, because it's new mercies every morning for you. It's an opportunity for new beginnings. So as they have these exchanges, Jesus says first time, Peter, do you love me more than these? I just want to ask, like, what are these? It's like a weird phrase that he starts off with. Jesus, Peter, do you love me more than these? We actually don't know what these are referring to. Like, no, we weren't there, and they don't tell us. But there's three different thoughts that people have, theologians, people smarter than me, of what this could apply to. The first one is the fish, the 153 that somebody took the time to count, which is a little funny. One, two, three. Hold on, Jesus. One, two, three, four. I don't know. But to count the fish... And then they got, the, they got the boats and the net. So maybe it's referring, Peter, do you love me more than the fish and the boats? And do you love me more than your occupation? Do you love me more than your livelihood or, your, or, or how, how the world sees you and your, and your position and, and, and culture and status in life? Do you love me more than these? Another option could be the disciples and his friends. Peter, do you love me more than all your, all your other relationships? More than your friends, more than your family? Do you love me even more than them? And the third one, though it sounds kind of like well, it's a weird question Jesus would ask, but it, to me it makes a lot of sense is it's almost a comparison. Peter, do you love me more than these, speaking of the disciples' love for Jesus, do you love me more than they love me? And the reason why that makes sense is there was a time in Peter's past when he denied Jesus where he was having a conversation with Jesus and he was like, you know, no, Jesus, I love you more than everybody else. I'll, I'll die for you. I'll never deny you, Jesus, is what he says. And Jesus is like, oh, Really? Well, actually, uh, before morning, you're going to die me three times before the rooster crows. Remember that exchange? And so when he asks, do you love me more than all them? He's kind of speaking to the fact that, like, Peter, you said that last time. Do you still feel that same way, knowing what, now what we know? Another thing I want to bring up here that's so powerful is the word choices that Jesus uses when talking to Peter here. Some theologians don't think this actually matters. They, just, they think it's just a simple exchange back and forth. But... I think it is interesting and worth noting that Jesus uses different words for the word love. So the first time when he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? The word he uses there is Jesus used the word with, from the word agape. It's agapeo, ak- I think is how you say it. I'm not a theologian. But it's this, the highest form of love. It's the 100%, as big as love as you can get. It's the, how God loves you, and it's what we're called to love God in response with all that we are. All our heart, soul, mind, strength. Like all that we are, right? That's that kind of love. And then what happens is, in the first time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you agape me? And he says, yes, Lord, I, and, Jesus, and Peter says, I phileo you. And the word phileo is like a brotherly love. It's like a, it's a respect and admiration. It's, it's a real love, but it's, it's like Jesus saying, Peter, do you 100% love me? And Peter's like, yes, Lord, you know that I 70% love you. <laughs> right? And then he says, okay, well, feed my lambs. And he goes, and then Jesus, okay. No, Peter, do you 100% love me? Do you agape me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I 70% love you. I phileo you. And then the third time, Peter gets hurt by it. He's offended. But you know what Jesus says? He goes, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you 70% love me? And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. Jesus changes the word. I think it matters. I think there's something happening here that Jesus is getting to the heart of Peter. And this is what, as I was processing, this is just a, a, something I want to submit. Was, it wasn't that, you know, Jesus is just saying, okay, it's okay to love me less. I actually wonder if Jesus is even saying, first he's like, you know, do you 100%? Yes, you know i 70. Do you 100%? Yes, I know i 70. And it's almost like Jesus is like, Peter, do you even 70% love me? And he goes, oh, Lord, you know. Because the last time he had this kind of conversation with Jesus, again, was when he denied Jesus. But what he was saying when he denied Jesus, Peter's like, no, Lord, I'll never deny you. I love you 100%. I agape you, Jesus, is what he's saying in the history. I'll die for you. I love you so much, I would die for you, right? But then we know that he portrays Jesus, right? And But what he's communicating to Jesus in the old story is like, you don't really know me, Jesus. You don't know my motives. You don't realize how sold out I really am for you. But here, there's this exchange, and Jesus is like, do you even 70% love me? And it's like this sober, humble response from Peter. He's like, Jesus, you know my capacity to love. You know all things. You know that I want to agape you. You know that I long to increase in my care and love and affection and devotion to you, but you know what I've done. And you know how I've fallen time and time again. I think I fell I think I, I think I got 70%, right? And what's so powerful about that is the next thing that Jesus does is he begins to prophesy over the life and death of Peter. And it sounds kind of morbid, but, but it isn't. He actually tells him like, you're going to live a long life, which is encouraging. And we also know that this gives great courage to Peter, because there's a time later on where he's in prison, and he's sitting between two guards. And the, and, and the Roman Empire is going to kill him the next morning, and he is sleeping. And the only reason why anybody would be sleeping is if they were pretty confident they're not going to die tomorrow. And the only reason why he was confident he wasn't going to die tomorrow is because the Lord already told him he's going to live a long life. So he's sleeping while he has a death sentence over his head. But also... I feel like this is God's initiation with him to say, hey, you know what, Peter? You're going to learn to agape me because someday you are going to die. And you know who you're going to die for? You're going to die for me. And you're going to be proud to be associated with me. You're not going to deny me later because your heart and your capacity is going to grow from a phileo to agape love. And I just kept thinking, man, like how often do I feel that way? I think this is uncomfortable for me, to be honest, to even talk about it in front of people because there's so many times where I'm like, God, I love you, I love you, but yet I can feel that I'm hitting a ceiling in my ability to love you. And God, I wanna obey you and I wanna be sold out for you, but yet I feel like there's this, this hesitancy sometimes in my yes to you. Like I wanna agape you, Jesus, I wanna be 100%, but yet I recognize that there's something in me that prevents me and that causes me sometimes to 70% love you. And what I wanna say is if you're in that room and you can res- in the room and you can resonate with me on that, the good news is Jesus is saying, you know what? Stay the course because I'm gonna, my grace is sufficient for you. And I'm going inca- to increase your capacity to someday agape me. There's hope for your heart to expand in response to the love of God today. That he wants to move us from a 70% to 100% devotion and love in response to Jesus. And that he's going to help us do it. We don't have to figure it all out. We don't have to be super Christians or something overnight or whatever. It doesn't even exist for the record. Right? But there's this grace of God that wants to stretch our capacity. I believe John's gospel is trying to tell us that God is a God of new beginnings. And the reason why he decides to put chapter 21 in there is because it's incomplete, because it's just an amazing story about an amazing God who did amazing things. But the 21 tells us the therefore says, so if you feel like you've fallen short, new beginnings. If you feel like your, your love is at a 70% <laughs> new beginnings, he's communicating an opportunity for us to continue to grow as followers and lovers of Jesus. It's awesome. And then he goes a step further and he starts to challenge us to be disciples who actually take this message everywhere because his response to Peter is, feed my sheep. I don't know about you, but if someone hurt my feelings and I had to forgive them, like I'd, I would forgive them, but I don't know if I would immediately just give them some sort of responsibility or something I really care about. I might protect a little bit my best interests. And Jesus is the great shepherd and the thing he cares most about, which scripture tells us, is people. It's you and it's the world out there, it's people. And here he tells Peter, do you love me? And he says, yeah, 70%. It's like, I'll work with it. I'm gonna expand your capacity to love me all the way. By the way, I'm gonna give you some responsibility of something I care about. I wanna participate, I wanna co-labor with you, Peter. I don't want you just to receive this message. I actually want you to partake, partake in it. He's going from just being a fisher of men to now a feeder of sheep. An increase of co-laboring and participating with Jesus. This is awesome. And this is the command of the disciple. Do you know this? And word, the word disciple can be intimidating, but it's a biblical word for those who follow Jesus. So if you're in this room and you say, I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord and how I'm submitting to follow him all the days of my life, you've now just signed up for discipleship you just signed up and say, and discipleship is I wanna become like Jesus. I wanna think like he thinks. I wanna feel like he feels. I wanna act like he acts. I'm gonna read his word and get to know the God of the Bible so I can know who he is. I'm gonna walk in community that might spur each other on. Like that's a disciple. And this is what Jesus is saying in his gospel. This is what John's writing about Jesus saying in his gospel is that don't just get the new beginnings for yourself, but offer that message to the world around you. The world needs to know that God is a God of new beginnings. They need to know the gospel. So go feed my sheep. Go fish for men. Go put your hand to the plow and be a disciple. We see this in Matthew 28. It's the most famous passage possibly in, other than maybe you know, John 3:16 16 in, in scripture. But this is the great commission. It says this, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So that's the mountain I was referring to earlier. Now they finally show up to where Jesus told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything. Can you say everything? I'm gonna say it again, can you say everything? So what this is telling us is we're not supposed to teach people to obey some of what Jesus says, some of the Bible, right? We're called to obey everything. I'm, God's not saying it's a litmus test, you have to be perfect, but it's this dependence. It's a devotion. It's an abandonment to Jesus saying, God, whatever you say, I'm gonna say is true and, and yes and amen. I might mess up along the way, but you're, you're, the new mercy is every morning. So tomorrow morning, there's a new mercy for me to try it again. I'm gonna lean into Jesus, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we get to wait actively with Jesus as he's with us along the journey. And what this does is it makes me think about one more passage I just want to bring up, and it's the Hebrew 12 passage. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. A disciple doesn't fix their eyes on culture to tell them what to do. They don't fix their eyes on politics, they don't fix their eyes on academics. These things aren't bad, they're just not Jesus. And so learn about those things, invest in those things, contribute as a godly person in those fears. But you need to have your eyes fixed on Jesus. And what's so amazing about this passage that gives this imagery of running a race, And it's more not like a a sprint by one person, it's more like a marathon or or, or, a longer race, but it has like a relay style. And what I think about is I think about someone running, our generation right now, we're running this relay and God's handing us the baton for our generation. And I just wanna read a couple statistics just to communicate this. The Barna Group is a a Christian think tank uh, who does statistics uh, on different religious things and and they tell us kind of the current state of culture. And they did a study for ages 20 through 29, so just people in their 20s. And I recognize that's just one demographic, but what it does tell us is this is the coming generations perspective for the future. So it's important for us to acknowledge that. Does it make sense? And in this, they they did this huge study and they found out these facts about people who at least at one point in their life said they were a Christian. So they identified as I'm a Christian. And it says this, that 22% of 20 through 29 year olds currently are now called prodigals according to this study, meaning they no longer identify as Christian at all. So 22% of our people in our twenties in our generation right now have completely said, I don't even identify as a Christian any longer. Then there's 30% that they, they identify as nomads. And nomads are people who still say, I'm a Christian, but they have not walked in church or had a personal devotional life with Jesus or anything of cultivating a relationship with God for at least six months, if not a year longer or longer. So they have no active walk with God at all. So we're at 52% of people who once professed Jesus as a a Christian. Then there's 38% who are called habitual churchgoers. This is the demographic who goes to church at least once, if not twice a month or more, but they have no fruit in their life that looks different from a non-churchgoer. So yeah, they come to church And they do the church activity, but their their conviction of the word of God or their obedience to God doesn't manifest in their decision-making. And then there's 10%. 10% left. And it's called the resilient disciple. I get emotional. Because we are called to be resilient disciples. This is what Jesus came to do. This is why we study the book of John. It isn't for us to be converts, it isn't for us to be religious lost, it isn't for us to be churchgoers, it's to be those who wholeheartedly devote ourselves to Jesus and say, whatever you say, I have a yes towards you, God. Whatever you want to do, I have a yes towards you, God. I don't need to understand it. It could be seven and a half feet and it makes no sense, but if you say it, because you say so, I will. I'm in and I'll be proud to be associated with you. I don't have a problem saying the name of Jesus around coworkers or family members or classmates or people at the grocery store or wherever. I am privileged to be identified as a Jesus follower. This is what we're called to be. And this is what the world needs. And we're running this relay race. We're running this race and the last generation has handed us the baton and now we're we're it. And we're called to run, and I don't know if the end's coming, I don't know if Jesus is gonna come back before we hand it off to the next one, I don't know any of that stuff. But I do know that I'm called to run with perseverance the race set before me, with my eyes fixed on Jesus, saying, whatever you do, Jesus, I'm in. And what's so beautiful is it even tells us that there's this great cloud of witnesses observing from heaven. You know, when you run a relay race, if I ran and I handed off my baton, I don't just like go to the locker room and all right, I'm gonna go shower. No, I stay at the finish line. I'm going, come on, come on. Because how that last person ends is how we all end. Do we win the race? I don't know. We got to wait for that last person to come across the line. We're sitting there. Come on, you can imagine just the great cloud of witnesses on the foot, on the edge of heaven. They're saying, come on, church. Be resilient disciples. Love them with your whole heart. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't just take this message for yourself and feel good. Give it away. The world needs it. And you might say, well, I'm just not good enough or I failed too much. And he's like, no, it's the gospels of new beginnings. It's this message of second and third and a hundred chances. And he says, you don't need to sideline yourself. Re-engage with Jesus this morning. This is the message of the gospel. This is why we are in this room. We're not here to play church. We're here to respond to the living God, the author of all things. And he's wanting to provoke us to engage and be active participators and what he's doing on the earth. When you walked in, you might have got two cards. If you haven't, we have many on a table out in the lobby. And I ask that you grab them. One card says, I'm praying for and inviting blank. This is a very practical and potentially uncomfortable step for you in your journey with Jesus. Where you're gonna say, God, who do I need to pray for? And who do I need to invite to church? And it doesn't have to be a church. I'm gonna gonna backstep here. It can be to your home that you might love them and tell them about what Jesus has done in your life over a dinner at, a, at a dinner at your table, okay? But you're saying, I'm intentional and I'm not putting a time frame. like let's do this for one week. This is the new lifestyle of a resilient disciple. I'm actively thinking about those who don't know Jesus, that they might know Jesus. I'm asking you to put this on your refrigerator or on your mirror in your bathroom or wherever you want, but I'm asking you to write down their name and pray and intercede that they might have an experience with Jesus. That's what we want, right? And the other card is something to invite them to. So we wanna invite them to church, want them to experience God's people and God's presence in this place and everywhere else. And so on uh, August 7th is our kickoff Sunday. Every year we have a kickoff Sunday. And it's just kind of like the, you know that calendar and culture isn't really January through December, it's like August through summer. You know, just kind of how the world works, it seems like. And so we kind of kick off in August. We're saying, okay, here we go. We're moving to this next chapter of life as a, as a church family. So when a lot of college students come back from being gone and the school's back in, in motion everything else. So on that 7th, we're going to have extra fun stuff. We're going to have some, uh, you know, bring kids wear swimsuits because we have some kids float up toys that get wet. And we have food and we have hot dogs and chips. And we're just going to hang out as a community and we're just going to love each other. And we're going to enjoy each other. And it's something you can invite people to on August 7th. And if you are a business owner, you work someplace that feels comfortable putting up posters, we have extra little posters that we have. You can put them up wherever you work or wherever you're doing and you can invite people. They're out on the table. But we want to be a people who are active in seeing people who are lost be found. And people who are far from God be drawn into God because this is the gospel message. This is what we're called to do as resilient disciples. Amen? Will you stand with me? we're going to have a time of response and I'm going to go ahead and invite if, if you're on our ministry team to pray for people just please come on, go ahead, come forward And um, I say this every time and I'm not ashamed of it this is the most important part of every Sunday because who cares if we say a whole lot of truth if we don't respond to it <laughs> like it's the application of truth that changes our lives and so I just want to invite you at this time uh, to, to come forward and get prayer. But specifically, the things that were stirring in me is one is if you felt like you're disqualified. I believe this morning is a, an opportunity to be reinstated. If you feel like, man, I've just, I messed up too much or I've gone too far or whatever. I think this is an opportunity for you to be reinstated with Jesus saying, I love you. And even if you're at 70% love, it's okay. I'll take it. Now let's work together. Let's move forward together. Let's do life together. Sorry, my microphone just broke. Another thing that I want to bring up is the sense of fear of man. And to think that our devotion to Jesus would be be quenched and tempered because we're afraid of somebody else's opinion because we love God and because we've experienced God and we've experienced the love of God. Now, we absolutely need to be humble, we absolutely need to be compassionate. We absolutely need to be tender and considerate. There's no no doubt about that, there's no debate. But we have to be able to open our mouths and tell people, Jesus loves you, I love you, let me pray for you. Have you ever experienced a godly community before? Come, experience the newness of life that God wants to offer. This is what the gospel is, this is who Jesus is, and this is what he has for you. We have to be willing, and you don't have to say it perfect. You don't have to be on a church staff or whatever. We see people time and time again, when we go overseas and we do missions, someone will give their life to Jesus and they're immediately going, hey, where are you going? Come back, we're not done. Like I need to tell my whole family about this. All my friends need to know who Jesus is. I just got my world rocked. We need to remind ourselves like Peter did of his salvation experience, of where we were pre-Jesus and then what he's done in our lives. And let that motivate us to open our mouths and love those around us. Pray with me. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this morning and we thank you God for the book of John and the way that it describes and declares and portrays the beautiful nature of Jesus and how awesome he is. And God, I pray that there would be an increase, an increase right now in belief in his name and that by believing in him, we will have life in his name. And God, there'll be an increase of conviction of obedience to him. That there'd be this, because you say so I will, mantra just, just churning in our souls saying, that's how I wanna live. I want to be a yes man, a yes woman for God. And we, God, we, I pray that we would have the courage to open our mouths and love people. And God, if anybody's in this room and they're just feeling overwhelmed with shame or condemnation or sin, I pray today's a day of repentance. Today's a day of sin being eradicated and, and, and restoration coming and feeling liberation again in Jesus. God, would you come and would you set people free? We love you. We honor you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond.